Okay, I'll encourage you to turn in your Bible to Ephesians chapter 5. In the first 21 or so verses here in chapter 5, Paul is explaining to believers. He's talking to the Christians in Ephesus, and he's explaining how that they are supposed to live out their new identity in Christ, how they're supposed to put on the new self, how they're supposed to imitate God, as he says at the beginning in verse 1, by doing three things, walking in three different ways. Last week, we talked about walking in love. Today, we're going to talk about walking in light. And then next week, we'll talk about walking in wisdom. And Paul, today in our text, goes into a detailed explanation of the differences between darkness and light. He contrasts the works of darkness with the fruit of what it looks like to walk in light. So let me point out something before we read and and get too far into this. Look at verse 8 for just a moment. For at one time you were darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. I want to point something out before we discuss this more. Paul does not say that you were walking in darkness, which is kind of interesting because that's sort of the feel of what you would think. But in the Greek and in our English translation too, he doesn't say you were walking in darkness. What does he say? You were darkness. That's interesting and notable. This is how he described the believers he was writing to. So get that in your mind. Let that shape our background this morning. Paul is writing to believers and he says, you were darkness. Guys, this describes each one of us. Paul could say the same thing to the church at Ramsey Creek. You were darkness. And for For believers, it's past tense. This used to be true of us. But if you're not saved this morning, it's still true of you. You are darkness. Those without Christ are actually walking in darkness. But this passage tells us a little deeper. Like you are darkness because you are participating in it. And I think this is consistent with what God says in other places throughout Scripture. My mind just went back to Isaiah where he talks about how our righteous deeds are like filthy rags. This tells us that even our best efforts, even our most valiant attempts to do right and to be right aren't regarded by God because here's the thing. They're not done with His glory in mind. They're done with your performance in mind. When we try to do right to make God happy, we just want the accolades. We just want the credit We don't care about his glory. And so that's why our righteous deeds are like filthy rags without Christ. Now, I may be offending you this morning by this, speaking about non-Christians in this way. I just want to point out and make clear that I'm talking about non-believers in this way because this is how the Bible speaks about non-believers. The Bible speaks about this this way out of genuine love. And I do it the same. Our church does it the same. Now imagine just for a minute illustrate this just a little bit more imagine for a minute that you go to the doctor and you find out or rather he finds out that you have a fatal disease you go to the doctor you didn't know anything was wrong and he finds out that you have a fatal disease whatever it is that you have it will eventually kill you but there's a cure he knows that there is a cure so he comes in and he starts to describe your, the problem that you have. And he go, starts to go into detail about what the symptoms are and how it's going to affect your life and all of these things. And obviously this part of the conversation is not real pleasant. 
You're being told you have this fatal disease and it makes you very uncomfortable. It would make any of us uncomfortable. Then he starts to explain how you could be treated, but you're not listening. All you've heard was the problem. You you feel okay. You say, doctor, I feel okay. I haven't noticed any of the symptoms that you've talked about. I don't really think that I have the problem that you say I have. And you refuse to listen to him, even though he's telling the truth. He's got the data to prove it. And even though there's a cure for what will eventually kill you, it doesn't do you any good because you won't even entertain the idea that something could be wrong. That scenario, which is probably very unlikely in a medical sense, that would be on you, not the doctor, right? Because they're trying to explain the problem and tell you the answer. But what if the doctor knew about your disease and had the cure for it, but he didn't tell you about any of it? What if there was something fatally wrong with you and the doctor knew the solution to your problem, but he chose not to tell you? Now, in our culture today, there would be all kinds of words attached to that, medical abuse, neglect, that sort of a thing. That kind of a situation, again, probably, hopefully, very unlikely, that would be on the doctor, not on you, because he had the information and didn't tell you. So what do I mean by all of this? Let me wrap it around to this. As believers, we believe that every person is born with a fatal problem. It will eventually kill you, and it's called sin. This problem affects our physical bodies, It affects our spiritual souls. It affects every relationship that we have. And guess what? If you do nothing about this fatal problem, it will eventually kill you, body and soul. But there is a cure. And we know what it is. Salvation in Christ alone. Right? That's the cure that we as believers believe to be true. We find that in God's Word. And even though it might be uncomfortable to hear... If Christians know the cure to a human-wide fatal illness and refuse to say anything, what does that say about us? We would also be neglectful and wrong to stay silent. So we cannot stay silent on this issue, even though it might hurt people to hear the truth about their problem or make them uncomfortable. So please understand, this is why we speak to you this way. This is why we speak about non-Christians this way. It's out of care and love for you. We know there is a problem and we know the cure and we want you to know it too. We believe the only solution to this problem is a relationship with Jesus Christ. And so that's why we tell you about him. Back to our text this morning. Without Christ, you are darkness because you are a functioning part of the darkness. Do you see this? You're following what Paul has already called the prince of the power of the air. You are in bondage to your current master, Satan. That's the reality here. But hope is not lost. There is joy found in this because Paul goes on to say, look at the second half of verse 8, but now you are light in the Lord. So Something has happened here. Something has happened in the lives of Christians for Paul to say, you were darkness, but now you are light. And one of our, one of our elders, we were passing around uh, my notes this week and evaluating and commenting on them. They brought up the, the, the person of, of Saul 
And there was absolutely this kind of a thing that happened in Saul's life when he met Christ, when he heard from Jesus, his life was radically different. He was darkness, a functioning part of it. If you know the story of Saul, you know that to be true. He was a functioning part of it, but now he was light in the Lord. Something drastic happened. What made the difference? How does a person go from being darkness to being light? Is it really possible for someone's eternal destiny to be changed? Yes, it can happen. And I I think it's wrapped up at the very end of verse 8. He says, but now you are light in the Lord. That's what makes the difference. A Christian's identity has been changed forever because they are now in the Lord. Christians, you are a different person now because you have been raised up with Christ to a right relationship with God the Father. You are different You are now light. And you have a relationship, as Paul said back in chapter 1, verse 5, that we talked about last week. You have a relationship with God the Father because in love, He predestined you to become a son or daughter according to the purpose of His will. That's what Paul says in Ephesians 1, verse 5. So our identity as a believer, our identity as a Christian has changed Your destiny has changed the moment that you put your faith in Christ. Because when you put your faith in Christ, you are then in the Lord. And now, because you are now light, Paul says, walk in that light. Walk as children of the light. Paul, throughout this text, is telling Christians to become what they are. Paul is saying, become what you are. Now, forgive me for using a Disney movie as an illustration this morning, but there's a lot of that that goes on in my house with four kids. But when I, when I started thinking about this idea of becoming who you already are, I, I thought of The Lion King. Again, forgive me for that, but you know the story probably. Simba leaves because of all the tension in his father's death, and, and he doesn't want to be the king anymore. He leaves the pride lands, and he, he doesn't want to be the king. He assumes he's not, and things go bad. Eventually, he comes back around and he becomes the king that he always was. When Simba left the Pride Lands, did he become not the king? No, he always was the king. When he came back, he started functioning in the role that he was always supposed to be in. We all, through the process of sanctification, we are becoming what we are. That's a weird kind of thing to think through. But we're becoming what we are. Every Christian will eventually become what we are, holy and blameless before God. That's something that God promises that we're challenged in Scripture to be. And we're all in the process as Christians of sanctification. You've heard that word. It's a biblical word, so we need to use it. We need to understand it. I think we can understand it as the period of time between justification and glorification. We're there. You're looking at a guy who's in the process of sanctification, and I'm looking at people who are doing the same, okay? But we're all in that process. So sanctification, I think, is a state of becoming who we are. Paul puts it this way in Romans chapter 8, verse 29 and 30. This is a familiar verse to you, but he says we're actually predestined to this. He says in verse 29 of chapter 8 of Romans, For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. 
and those whom he justified, he also glorified. Believer, what God promises will happen to you, count on it. It's going to happen to you. He said, you are predestined, if you are in Christ, you are predestined to be conformed to his image. That's going to happen. And God uses various ways to do that. Let me encourage you, despite the many different factors that play into our sanctification and the speed of it or the depth of it or whatever that might be, let me encourage you this morning, you can rest in the promises of God that what he said about you as a believer will happen. It's happening now, in fact. God is conforming you to the image of Christ and he's using the highs in your life and he's using the lows in your life, the mountains and the valleys, to conform you to the image of his son. And so our text today that we're about to read, Paul is explaining how you are supposed to become who you are, how you are supposed to walk in light. So read with me verses 3 through 14 of Ephesians chapter 5. But sexual immorality and all impurity or covetousness must not even be named among you as is proper among the saints. Let there, let there be no filthiness, nor foolish talk, nor crude joking, which are out of place, but instead let there be thanksgiving. For you may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure or who is covetous, that is an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of these things, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Therefore, do not become partners with them. For at one time you were darkness, but now you're light in the Lord. Walk as children of light, for the fruit of light is found in all that's good and right and true. And try to discern what is pleasing to the Lord. Take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness, but instead expose them. For it's shameful even to speak of the things that they do in secret. But when anything, anything is exposed by the light, it becomes visible. For anything that becomes visible is light. Therefore, it says, awake, O sleeper, and arise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. Let's pray together. Father, many in this room are your beloved children not because of any honorable thing you saw deep down inside of them, but purely because of your mercy and your kindness. Those who are your children, Lord, now we desire to follow you well, but we have to confess that we don't follow through on that desire very well. Lord, forgive us. Grant us repentance. Come alongside us and steady our faltering efforts as we are conformed more and more to the image of your son jesus let us put aside the way ways of darkness let us be done with the bondage of sin lord and be thrilled to walk in your light pray this in christ's name amen because jesus loved us and because he gave himself up for us we are expected to live differently look back at verse 2 of chapter 5 this is what is said as Christ loved us and gave himself for us. Because he has done that, now we have a new perspective. We have a new self, and it's different. If you had to describe the Christian life to people, what would you say? Well, I hope part of your answer would come from a text like this today, verses 3 through 14, what this looks like to walk in the light. 
But Paul doesn't start with the positive, as he often does. He actually starts with the negative. And you can see that right off the bat in verse 3. Verse 5 and 6 also kind of deal with these things, so we'll tie those together. These verses deal with sin. The sin of sexual immorality, of impurity, covetousness, or idolatry. Before we continue, let me just be clear about something. As a church that promotes Scripture as God's perfect and holy and inspired Word, we cannot justify or rename things that God calls sin. We can't do that. We won't do that. Since the fall in the garden, mankind has been trying to find a way to make sin more palatable, to make sin more acceptable among us. Right away with Adam and Eve, we find this. Satan deceived Eve. He deceived Adam into believing that the one thing God told them they shouldn't do was actually the only thing that was going to make them happy. He convinced them that sin was actually good. Brothers and sisters, the enemy's tactics have not changed. They really haven't. Notice what Paul says in verse 6. He says, Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of these things the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Think about what the world looked like before the flood. We're given a little insight, and it's not good. Basically, All of human society, save for Noah and his family, all of human society was thinking about sin all the time. Like constantly just thinking about sin. Sinful desires, sinful thoughts, sinful acts. Obviously, they had come to believe that what they were doing either wasn't really wrong or that God wasn't really there and didn't care. Both false assumptions. They believed that what they were doing was okay and it wasn't. God's wrath, God's justice, I would say, on sin was poured out on the world, on mankind, in monumental fashion in the flood because of their sin. We think in America that we are advanced and progressive and we couldn't be further from the truth. When you read what was written here in Ephesians, this is almost 2,000 years ago, I think it's clear that our problems really haven't changed much. Impurity, immorality, these things are still a problem. And the sins that Paul is talking about here are growing out of a heart that has replaced God's warning against sin with a free pass because of its common and easy nature. It's hard to do the right thing, isn't it? Well, everybody wrestles with sexual sin to some degree and in some way Everybody struggles with contentment. Everybody struggles with not wanting what other people have. And so instead of working hard and actually exercising some self-control, our society just hands out free passes to sin because everybody does it and because it makes us happy. Our culture would have you believe that the things listed in these verses that we talked about aren't that big a deal. This sounds an awful lot like pre-flood humanity doesn't. Our culture does. Now God promised... He would never destroy the earth in that way again. And he's given us the final and perfect sacrifice in Jesus Christ. And so we know that his judgment on sin in the world today looks a little bit different than it did back in Noah's day. But let me assure you, the hearts of fallen mankind don't look all that much different. We still would rather be lulled to sleep in sin in the 21st century, just like mankind before the flood, than to actually be delivered out of it. 
How do I know this? Well, drive down the highway. You see it up on billboards. Open a magazine, just about any magazine you can think of. You'll see it on the pages. Turn on the television. Almost every television show has been infiltrated by these things that Paul is saying shouldn't even be named among the saints. That's how I know that our culture has embraced it. Scripture is very clear on this issue. Sexual immorality and impurity in this way have no place in the life of a Christian. Look at verse 3. Paul says it's not even supposed to be named among you. Look at verse 12. He says it's shameful to even speak of the things that they do in secret. Look back at verse 6. He says it's because of these things that the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. This is a big deal. Remember, Paul has already said back in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 and 2, he said that the sons of disobedience, because of these things, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Those are the people who are dead in their trespasses and sins and who have the spirit of Satan. That's what chapter 2, verses 1 and 2 say. Those are the sons of disobedience. So because of mankind's sin, sin that always includes sexual immorality and idolatry, because of those things, the wrath of God is coming. Therefore, it is with absolute certainty that you as a believer do not have to wonder if this would ever be okay before God. You know that these things are not to have any place in the life of a Christian. And so I, I want to challenge and encourage you this morning, though, that if these things, if these kinds of sins have taken root in your life, I want you to know two things. Number one, that sin, this kind of sin, separates you from God. It does. It separates you from God. As a non-Christian, it will keep you from a relationship with God in this life and in the next. As a believer, if this kind of sin has taken root in your life, you need to know that sexual sin separates you from close fellowship with the Father. Unrepentant, consistent sin in this way separates you from God. Second thing I want you to know, this sin is covered by the blood of Christ on the cross. Christ's death, we found out earlier in Ephesians, has broken down the dividing wall between sinful man and a holy God, and it gives sinners hope of adoption as a son or a daughter in God's family. Christ's constant intercession on our behalf before the Father means that God in His kindness, because of Christ's sacrifice, will lead believers to repentance and restoration. This is such a big issue in our culture. Brothers and sisters, this is such a big issue in our churches. We can't just stop here. We need to go further and deeper in this. And I want to look at a case study from 1 Corinthians chapter 5. The Corinthian church was instructed by Paul to immediately put out of the church a man who was involved in serious sexual immorality. And just so you understand, it wasn't like Paul or someone found out about this guy. You know, they were peeking through his windows at home and found out he was doing something bad, you know, behind closed doors and told Paul and, you know, Paul just blasted him and dragged him before the church and made a big deal and treated him unfairly and unsensitively. That's not what happened. This man was known for his immorality and not just in the church. This man was known in the world, in a pagan society for his immorality outside the church. 
and the church was boasting about their acceptance of it. You'll see that in the text that we read. The church was boasting about tolerating a man who the pagan society around them thought was shameful. In essence, the church was exalting what even worldly people condemned. And Paul had some fierce words for the the church here. He said, no. God said, no, this cannot remain. Put him out of the church and pray for his salvation. Pray for his soul. But just to be clear, we're not talking about everyone who is sexually immoral in this way. Read with me, 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 9-13. through 13. This is Paul writing to the church. He says, I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people, not at all meaning the sexually immoral of this world or the greedy or swindlers or idolaters, since then you would have to go out of the world. But now I'm writing to you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of brother if he's guilty of sexual immorality or greed or is an idolater, reviler, drunkard, or swindler, not even to eat with such a one. For what have I to do with judging outsiders? Is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge? God judges those outside. Purge the evil person from among you. Wow. Paul is writing this to the believers in the church. He uses the word judge here, and that's a good word to use, obviously, but I think we can use accountability as a helpful term in this sense too. Brothers and sisters, we are supposed to, we are commanded to hold each other accountable and then discipline each other out of and away from sexual sin. This is God's instruction to to his people, to the church. Verse 13 of that text we just read says that God judges people outside the church, but the church is supposed to remove the person from among them. And not just to remove them, but not even have a meal with them. Not even to sit down and have a meal with them. Now let's, let's slow this down for a second. Let's pump the brakes for a bit because this is pretty intense. Let's just understand, is, is Paul saying in that text, is he saying that every person who struggles with and falls into sexual morality, sexual sin, should be excommunicated from the church? If that was the case, churches around the world would be pretty empty. I don't think that's what Paul is saying here. I don't think that's what God is trying to help us understand. I think what he is saying is that if a person calls themselves a Christian, if a person calls themselves a brother or a sister, and they continue in blatant and open immorality, the church has to take action. The church has to do something. It's commanded by God. We cannot ignore this kind of a thing. We have to do something. Now, when action is taken, let me just say that it's to be done with love as the motivation and reconciliation as the goal. It's not just to make a big deal and to put this person out there and make fun of them. It's to restore them to a right relationship with God. The motivation is love. And if it's anything other than that, we're doing it wrong. Now, obviously the details of of that kind of a thing, of this situation in particular, are a different subject for a different time. But we need to understand something in this context this morning that we cannot be silent when we see this in the church. We can't. Christians should be working hard by the power of the Spirit to root out sexual sin from our lives. We should be intentional about this. You used to be darkness. You now are light. 
become what you are. Now, Paul uses a term in verses 3 and 5. He talks about all, he talks about impurity. And he ties it to this idea of covetousness. In verse 5, then Paul kind of explains and ties both of, both of those things to the root issue. What is it? Idolatry. Idolatry. Now, some translations use the word greed here for covetousness. But when you get to the root of all of these things, sexual immorality, impurity, greed, covetousness, the root is the same. Idolatry. We want more pleasure. We want more of what other people have. We want more money. We want more stuff. In each of these things, we put our own desires and we put our own pleasures above God. And that's the very definition of idolatry is when something in your life is put before God himself. In reality, when people trapped in these things look for God, they end up just seeing themselves because they have become their own God. Their desires, their wants are more important than anything that God says. Now understand, believer, how we live is an overflow of what's in our hearts and what we choose to worship. So let me ask this question for reflection inwardly this morning. What is overflowing from your heart? Are the desires of your heart leading you toward Jesus or away from Jesus? Friends, we want you to be healed. We want you to be free from this kind of sin in your life. But you cannot have healing without repentance. You cannot be healed without understanding and acknowledging that there's a problem. Remember our doctor illustration from earlier? If someone says you have a problem and you refuse to believe it, acknowledge it, how can you ever be healed? You can't. And so, brothers and sisters, you have to understand and acknowledge that you have a problem of sin in your life. But not only that, you have to believe that it's wrong and that you need to change then you can experience the grace of Jesus and allow the Spirit to change your habits. It's not easy, but brothers and sisters, be reminded and encouraged that His mercies are new every morning for those whose hope is in Him alone. Now look back at verse 4, Ephesians chapter 5, verse 4. Paul says, Filthiness, nor foolish talk, nor crude joking, those things should not be in the life of a Christian. This ties us back to chapter 4, verse 29, where Paul said, Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up, as fits the occasion that it may give grace to those who hear. People who are walking in the light will not talk like people who are walking in darkness. They will not talk like people who live and belong to the world. To borrow my analogy from a couple weeks ago when we preached on chapter 4, verse 29, Christians' words will not be like dead fish spewing out into ev- onto everyone who hears. They will be giving life. They will be giving encouragement. They will be building up. And Paul says that they will be identified by something specific at the end of verse 4. But instead, let there be what? Thanksgiving. Replace crude joking, inappropriate talk with thanksgiving. Instead of being known for corrupt speech, Christians should be known for giving thanks. That's what we should be known for. It's almost impossible to think selfishly when you're thanking God for something. 
Now, we can because we've got depraved hearts and minds and we can twist even being thankful into a selfish thing. But the more that our hearts and the more that our minds are focused on spirit of thankfulness, the less opportunity there's going to be for the flesh to sin because we're casting our hope, our appreciation, our genuine love on God who is the giver of all good things. And that takes the focus off of ourselves. It removes our eyes from ourselves. It's in Romans chapter 8, verse 5 and 6. For those who live according to the flesh, they set their minds on the things of the flesh. But those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. That seems pretty simple, right? Where you set your mind is vastly important here. And then Paul continues, he says, For to set the mind on the flesh is death. But to set the mind on the Spirit is life and peace. I read this week as I was studying, thanksgiving is an, is an antidote of sin. Thanksgiving is an antidote of sin because thanksgiving has this attitude that says, Lord, thank you for all that you've generously blessed me with. In you I find everything that I need. Help me not to go looking to some other substitute for joy, for peace, for pleasure. Brothers and sisters in Christ, you have a God who is more satisfying than anything else on this earth. I would challenge you to worship Him alone, not to run after cheap substitutes. They do not live up to the claims that they have. Now, lastly, Paul instructs or exhorts his readers to not just put off the sins of the flesh, but now he's getting to the positive aspect of, of the Christian life. That was a negative aspect of don't, don't do those things. Those things do not describe someone who's living in the light. Now he gets into the, the positive aspect. Walk in the light. What does the light do when we walk in it? It exposes darkness. You display the fruit of walking in light by not participating in the works of darkness. You know this to be true because when everybody's doing the wrong thing and you choose to not do the wrong thing, what usually happens? You start getting pointed out, maybe even made fun of for not participating in the works of darkness because people see your life and they realize there's light there. And number one, it bothers them because they don't have the same light and so they want to drag you down into the darkness and number two, they like where they're at a lot of times. And they don't want to hear the truth of the light. But Paul says in verse 7 here of Ephesians 5, he says, Do not become partners with them. The people that walk in darkness, the sons of disobedience, don't be like them. Don't be involved in the things that they're involved with. Instead, he says in verses 8 through 10, he says, Walk as children of light and try to discern what is pleasing to the Lord. This is an important part discernment we're supposed to discern what's pleasing to the lord when you're discerning something you're evaluating it with some kind of standard in mind that's what this, that's how we discern stuff so just for visual instance if i'm building a wall and if i'm trying to discern if that wall is straight and level what standard do i use well, i use a, a plumb bob or a level or you know measuring tapes i use standards that are typical for that line of work. If I'm going to discern how heavy an object is, what do I use? There's a scale. Right? That is a standard that I use to discern something. 
You guys see where I'm going with this. How do we discern what is pleasing to the Lord? What standard do we use? Is it the standard of the things that we want it to be? I really want God's will to be this. So I'm sure that's what it is. And I'm just going to speak it and it's going to happen. Is, is that the standard that we use? Is it the standard of what the world says it is? Boy, I hope not. The standard that we use to discern what is pleasing to the Lord is what God says is pleasing to Him in His Word. That's the standard that we use. If we're supposed to be imitators of God, we have to then cling to what is good and right and true. In verse 9, Paul says that. Cling to those things. That's the standard. What is true and good and right? If that is our standard, we're not going to walk in darkness. We're not going to participate in those ways. Instead, we're going to allow the light of Christ to reflect in us to expose darkness. Anybody used a periscope before? You know what a periscope is, though, right? It uses just my very limited understanding of a periscope. It uses a series of mirrors to reflect images and light to get to places that you normally couldn't. So submarines use it to, to put up above the water and then they can see what's going on up there. I've seen it on playgrounds where they'll do a periscope and they'll have mirrors and you can kind of see around corners. Now imagine with that in your mind, imagine if you were in a dark room with a periscope and it was angled around the corner and you shone, a, shone shined, whatever the word should be, you, you did that with a flashlight into the periscope. Where's the light go? goes around the corner, right where you want it. So the light uses the mirrors to go around obstacles to things that it normally couldn't get to to shine where it's supposed to shine. The actual source of light finds its way to where it's supposed to be because of the mirrors reflecting it. Christian, you're the mirror. The light of Christ is shining through you around obstacles and places in this world that don't really want the light, that may not be able to have the light, but God gets his light to those places and exposes the darkness by using you. Isn't that how every one of us was saved, though? Think about your salvation story. God used someone as a mirror to shine the light of truth around the obstacles, over the, the problems of sin in your life, to pierce that darkness and your heart with truth. Some Christian somewhere did that in your life. Praise God for that person. This helps us understand, though, that the lifestyle and the conduct of us as, as a believer is what brings light into the darkness. Paul talks about this in Romans when he talks about the spreading of the gospel and they need people to hear and who's going to hear if no one's sent. Brothers and sisters, we're the ones who are sent. Confronting or exposing the darkness of sin will involve using words. We have to speak up and to speak out against sin in our culture. But you know the saying, a picture is worth a thousand words, right? Our lives, the way that we live, how we act when we're not in this building is a huge picture of the light of Christ. So Christian, let your light, let your life, let your actions be a clear picture of Christ in a dark world. And I want to end this morning on reflecting on the transforming light of Christ. Something else here in verse 14. Paul says, For anything that becomes visible is light. And then that very last line of verse 14, he says, And Christ will shine upon you. There is transforming power in the light of Christ. 
it's not the mirrors in the periscope that are the hero. It's the light. You have to have light to see anything. You're not the hero of this story. God uses you, absolutely uses you for his purpose and for his glory in this world. But you're not the hero. Christ is. And in his light, there is transforming power because some of the darkness, this is what Paul, I think, is getting at here. Some of the darkness, when it is exposed to light, then actually becomes light itself. This, this is how fires work. You add fuel, you add flame, and then the, when it gets close to something else that's combustible, it passes that fire along. And that's how they grow. Believers, when we have the fire, the light of Christ within us, and we go and we expose darkness by his grace in this world, that person that used to be darkness now becomes light. That's the transforming power of Christ. Listen as one theologian talks about this. He says, the exposure of people's sin affected through believers' lives enables people to see the sinful nature of their own deeds. Some abandon the darkness of sin and respond to the light so that they actually then become light themselves. That's our hope in evangelism. That's our hope in walking in light is that others would see the light, believe in the light and become light themselves. Reflections of Christ. When Christians who are awakened to the light, when we shine the light of truth and darkness in a dark world with our words and deeds, we make visible the shameful and secretive deeds of darkness. God uses Christians to do that. And in this way, we're described, believers are described as salt and light, making God's glory known in a dark world. But Christians are also used to help those in darkness come to the light themselves. Believer, God in his wisdom chooses you to be a part of the flood of light that pierces the darkness of this world. Wonder in that. Be thankful in that. It's not you. God uses you and praise him for that, but it's the hero is Christ. We're reflecting his glory, his light into the world like a periscope. So my question would be, how are you reflecting Christ today? Let me ask it a little differently, especially if you're married. How would your spouse say that you're reflecting Christ today? I shudder to think of what my wife would say. But there is hope in this because God did not come to leave us where we're at. Our sanctification is God making us more into the image of Christ and he's doing that today. But how are you reflecting his light? Do you want to be the clearest reflection of Christ as possible in a dark world? Or are you doing everything you can to keep certain things buried away from the light because you fear the exposure that the light brings? I think we all do that in some things to some degree. And I would encourage you, brothers and sisters, as I desire to do this as well, give those areas of darkness up to the Lord. Surrender them to the light. Do not fear it. Run into the light today. With the light of truth, the light of Christ comes healing, comes restoration, comes forgiveness, comes real freedom in Christ. Let's pray together. God, as, as we contemplate what your light looks like in a dark world through us, and so, Lord, you have chosen to use believers to be reflections of your light, like the moon reflects the sun. And so I pray as we, we think on these things and we evaluate ourselves with the question, what are we reflecting today? Lord, I pray that we're real about this.
Because if statistics mean anything, there are people in our church here this morning bound up, wrapped up in bondage to sexual sin and impurity. And Lord, I pray that you would deliver people from that today. We know that you can and we pray that you would so that we can live in freedom, that we can live in light because Lord, lives exposed to the light constantly are ones that please you. And so I pray, Lord, that you would help us to be discerning on what pleases you today and to root out the things that do not please you. Father, have your way in us as we sing and as we pray and as you move in hearts this morning. In Christ's name, amen.